Well, hello and good morning. My name is uh, Brian Hall, and this is my wife, Laura. Good morning. Um, yeah, we wanted to share a little bit um, on anxiety and a little testimony. So um, I deal with, well, my diagnosis, or what I deal with is bipolar 1 uh, with psychotic features. And so what that means is that when my bipolar peaks at mania, I tend to get hallucinations, which is absolutely crazy. And besides that, I tend to be in the mania area of bipolar, which always keeps me anxious. Um, and irritable, very irritable. So, um, God, uh, thank God that, that we have the opportunity to, to have Jesus as our, in the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, we would not be able to do this without it. Uh, some of those worship songs had me so weepy because it had me thinking about how broken I am when I'm anxious and how debilitating and how crippling it is. It's like I don't leave the house. I don't take care of myself. The only thing I, have, I can do is take care of my daughter. And it's that, it gets that bad, and it's like that a couple days a week. I um, don't take medication for anxiety because they're all addicting, and I am a recovered drug addict. Um, and so this uh, sparked and kind of came about, this bipolar and all the kind of craziness and the anxiety that I deal with um, when, our first daughter, when our daughter was born. And um, I've been dealing with this now for about two years. And uh, right now I'd have to say that I am becoming stabilized, uh, which is awesome, and it really, uh, it really helps our family a lot. Laura has to deal with so much um, as a spouse of a person with a mental illness, so um, we struggle with that, but thank God, thank Jesus that we have um, that, and I just want to kind of open up with that to share the story, um, the testimony. Um, I had to check myself into a psychiatric hospital April 1st, April Fool's Day, of 2019 and I gotta tell you it was an amazing experience even though it sucked <laughs> um, the outpouring of support from this this body was amazing um, Pastor Jacob visited me Kendra Kendra um, everyone I can Putin's I mean there's so many people I'm leaving out but I had literally nine visitors and um, nine visitors each day I was there, and no one else even had visitors, so I just saw Jesus really pouring uh, love into my heart. And uh, through that brokenness, Pastor Jacob showed up, and uh, he, he asked me a few questions, and we, we talked, and coming up soon would be Good Friday. And little did we know or even think about at the time uh, when he asked me if I would speak at the Good Friday service uh, what we were truly dealing with. And uh, I just really am thankful and grateful and blessed by the community we're surrounded by that I had that opportunity, you know, and an opportunity to share the testimony that when we're in our broken, most horrible, horrific places as a human being, other people in our community pull it out of us, pull out the goodness. And uh, that's what he did. So, so you, were, you, were, you got out of the, the hospital in like that day? Or? I got out April 9th, so I was there nine full days. And then, and then when was the Good Friday service? That was like three days later. A couple days later. Yeah. And so we got out, we prepared, Laura and I did together, and God just gave us everything we needed. Yeah. So, yeah. anxiety-free. Cool. Um, so, yeah, it's amazing. And then, yeah, clap. And, you know, like bringing awareness to mental illness and the stigma that's with it is, like, so important. So being a spouse, like I'm a therapist. I work with people struggling, and I work with anxiety, okay? But then to have 
it in my home every day. Like, I don't know what the heck I'm doing, and I don't have the compassion that I need to understand him, so I'm constantly asking Jesus to help me. Um, you know, anxiety is, for some people, a daily, minute-by-minute thing. For other people, it's situational. Um, and so I didn't want to come today at all, um, but he said, I have to come, so I'm here. <laughs> um, and I do feel a little bit better, but um, anxiety is the, um, it's the absence of being present. It's a fear of the future. So um, on Wednesday, you know, I was pregnant, and then um, I just started bleeding, and I knew that it was bad, and I knew that, it, you know, it was probably a miscarriage. And, and I did this thing. Um, it's, a, it's a technique. If you feel anxious, it's, um, oh, my gosh, uh, fear something, fear rationalization or something. So anyway, I got out my journal, and I started writing about worst-case scenario. What would it look like? Okay, miscarriage. And I played out the whole scene in my head. I wrote it all down. Baby's dead, blah, blah, blah. This sucks. I hate it. And then I realized, okay, the worst case scenario would be that. And then I just remember writing like, okay, if that's the worst case, what would I say? Sorry, I'm all candid, but it's like, it sucks. I did lose a baby on Friday. I went in for an ultrasound and there was no heartbeat and there was no, um, no baby, which means that I had already lost it. And so there I was three days, Wednesday to Friday, having to wait to go to my appointment losing all this blood, having pains like I'm in labor, working with these kids who are desperate, and still I had to go to work, and still I had to do all this stuff, and um, I, don't know, I don't know how I did it. Um, but then finally the appointment came, and finally I, I knew what it was. But I just want to show you this thing. So it's a technique you can try. It's, I'll think of it when I think of it and let you know. Um, but what was that thing? Okay, sorry. Okay, I said, um, oh gosh. I just said, God, you're sovereign. If this happens, if the worst thing happens, you're still good. And I don't, I don't even know. But that's the thing. If you, we all deal with anxiety, whether it's everyday or it's situational. And the thing is, we need to be real with ourselves, and we need to be real with each other. And when we talk about it, it, it is not this, it is a, the mountain is a little bit smaller, and it, and it is something that we can cross, because we are meant to do it together. So thank you. I, I wanted to start this morning with the testimony of our friends, because I want you to know something and understand something about our church, and, and about the nature of our church. Brian and Laura run the reconciliation table. Uh, they, they prepare amazing meals every single week. They have long and valuable conversations with other people every single week. They pastor people. They lead people. They sit with them. They hear their stories. They connect with their pain. They empathize with the broken worlds that come into those doors every single week and have meals with them. And they sit across the table and they hear the story. And God has used the broken pieces of their lives to transform the lives of many other people in our community. God did not count Brian out when he, signed himself, when he checked himself into the hospital, and nor did we. We applauded him for taking that step toward getting whole, and we eagerly awaited that testimony of what, of what God was going to do through that time. And we were all there that day. I mean, many of you guys were there that day. 
uh, on Good Friday in that worship night, listening to both of them share about the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we heard that, most of us, we couldn't, I know for Don and I, we both, we were sitting back that day thinking, man, this is our church. This is what we get to do. We come alongside people when they're hurting and we embrace the things that we believe that God can use for his glory. But please hear this, because we've been talking about a lot of brokenness and we're gonna keep talking about a lot of brokenness. We don't want you to be broken, okay? The point is not that we want you to be broken. Actually, each and every one of us who are sharing in these stories and sharing our testimonies to be vulnerable with you, we're trying to kind of put ourselves in a place where you understand that we're human, you're human, we're all in this together, we're a body. But we've all dedicated ourselves in one way or another to finding wholeness in our lives. We do not believe that anxiety or stress or depression or pain or suffering is what God has for us. That's, we don't believe that's what he has for us. It's not his end game for our lives. Yet we've all faced things that I know many others would say, man, God, can you even use me anymore after going through this? Am I, am I, even, am I even able to be used? And yet story after story after story, we... we hear the exact opposite and we see the exact opposite. We see people rising in the face of difficulty, kind of just sort of punching the devil in the face like you guys did that day. Coming out of there, we're like, all right, we're here. We're going to go. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about how good the cross is, how amazing it is and what it does and what it meant for our lives today. And doing something significant with your pain. So just like Brian, for me, my struggle is also anxiety. I struggle with it really bad. Really, really, really bad. It's always been an issue for me. And it's grown over these last few years with the church and having to like navigate numbers and people and helping and trying to figure out is what we're doing significant? Does it mean nothing at all? What's, it, you know, what's even happening? Um, it's, it's, it's grown with me, especially through some of the traumatic circumstances and situations that we've, we've talked through. Some of you guys have heard those already um, in, um, earlier in the series. And so we've done several teachings on anxiety before, previously, and we're going to handle it actually quite a bit differently today, but if you want more resources on that, we've taught on it quite a bit. Uh, and there's also books that we can recommend and resources we can recommend for you that'll keep that going. But it's very obvious that this particular topic fits our series, All the Broken Pieces, because literally, the Greek word for anxiety, it's the word Miriam now, and its root word literally means to be in pieces. It's the word uh, marizo. And uh, it's, Marizo is actually the word that Jesus uses when he says that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom, Marizo, cannot stand. And if, it, if an entire kingdom can fall because of this, just imagine what it could do to a single mind. But so much of the world is living in a state completely like this. They live every day with this. They live their lives in constant pieces regretful about yesterday, worried about tomorrow. Their mind is everywhere else besides where they are and they can't put the pieces back together in order to actually embrace a moment. Now most anybody who's, who's studied anxiety at all will tell you that it has everything to do with control. It is the things that are out of your hands that cause stress. Things that you think 
you should be able to control, but ultimately you know that you, you can't control that. That's what causes anxiety for most people. And so what happens is we piece together this sort of imaginary, utopian, perfect existence of what our lives should look like, and then reality comes and smashes that thing to pieces. And we have no clue what to do with it when that happens. Something happens one way, and you're just sure, oh, it should be a different way. It shouldn't be this way. As you, but as you begin to start to recognize a pattern of how this has happened in your past, you begin to just assume that's also going to be your future. And that's what causes it, right? Like, that's going to be the future. And uh, you think, well, things didn't go my way then. Why would they go my way now? And it drives us somewhat mad for a lot of us. I mean, Jesus actually dedicates more time to anxiety in his, in, uh, than any other discourse in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. If you read that like word for word, word count, way more on anxiety than anything else because this is such a big deal. And he knows if you're worried about tomorrow, you're going to miss who you're supposed to be today. In the Hebrew language, one of the definitions for anxiety is the inability to be here. It's the inability to be present. It's the inability to be in a moment, which is actually huge with understanding where we're going to take this today. Um, and it's very important to understand that we can overcome this, but it's going to take some work. I remember when Don and I first got to Detroit, we were new pastors, and we started meeting with uh, some older, wiser pastors who had kind of finished the race as pastors, they had 30-plus years, faithful men um, of God who had done this, done this thing. And they started sitting us down and kind of trying to speak into us and encourage us. And what these older guys were warning us against was a restless spirit. It's the idea that there's always another thing, a next thing, a bigger thing, a thing that to look forward to that will rob you of your moments if you're not careful. Because, because God has something that he wants to do with us. And whether or not God maybe has something later for us or for you or for any of us or not, the easiest way to miss what God is doing in your life today is to be thinking about what he's going to do tomorrow. It's a reality. We think it's a good thing, but it's not. It's actually robbing us of moments. In the church, I think we're the masters of this because we're always like, revival, revival, we need revival, we pray for revival, and yet we're crying for revival as it's walking right by us. It's like this thing is happening right here, but we can't see it because maybe it doesn't look like we thought it should look or because it's just not the way that we think that it will be. And so what happens is we're always anticipating something more and we miss out on what actually, on what actually is. So these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, John, write these words. And he, 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 and he says, write these words to the angels of these churches. Now what that means when it says the angels, it's basically saying to the pastors, to the people who have care over these, the people who are watching out and looking out after these churches in these cities. It's actually, they're all really powerful. The church has a lot to learn from each of them, uh, which I'm sure could be another series down the road. But I want to share, <clears throat> share with you something very specific that spoke to me about the church in Pergamum. Now first, a little bit about Pergamum, just so you can kind of understand who these people were because it actually really matters to what Jesus says and it'll make a lot more sense for you. So for the last 400 or so years before John writes the, the, the book of Revelation, Pergamum ha held a very high place of influence in the world. It was at one point the capital city for Rome in Asia Minor. So these are the, the seven cities that, that John writes to. Pergamum is kind of the, the, the main hub city for Rome. It was Rome's hub in that region. 
It was an extremely religious place. There were temples and altars to gods everywhere, to different gods. Significantly, uh, there had actually been a temple that was built in Pergamum in honor of Caesar Augustus. In fact, they're the first city to establish what was known as the emperor cult, where people would literally go to the temple just to worship Caesar. Not long after Revelation was written, uh, another temple was built for the purpose of worshiping uh, Roman Caesar Trajan, who came, who came after John. The, the Augustan temple uh, was, uh, was have been similar to this. This is a depiction of it. It was also pictured on many of the ancient coins. And on the flip side of that coin would be a picture of Caesar with an inscription that said something along the lines of Caesar is Lord or the son of the divine or the, basically Caesar is God. So, simply to take part in the marketplace system, citizens had to use coins that declared that Caesar is Lord. There were also temples there to Zeus, uh, his son Dionysus, uh, and many, many, many others. Uh, There's Athena's, uh, a few others. But the Roman grip on this this city was over the top, to, to the point where if you were to denounce the deity of an emperor, that was considered treason. In fact, the governor of Pergamum had what was called Ias Gladi, which means the right to the sword. And what that meant is, the, the, if you had this, you had the ability, the power, to have anyone killed for any reason if it furthered the interests of Rome. So, because of that surmounting pressure, the thing that Jesus ultimately had against this church, because when you read Revelation, he has something against all of the churches. The thing he has against Revel- uh, the church in Pergamum was that some of them were giving ear to the false teachings and they were worshiping these gods and some of them were caught up in sexual immorality. Now, you have to understand this. We're, we're not going to focus much on that part of this today because it's actually quite insignificant to where we're going. But when you talk about sin, anytime you talk about sin, you have to understand that sin is always a result of something bigger. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he does a very thorough uh, explanation of this. Sin is always a result of us removing God, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, and essentially building ourselves up thinking, I can do it better. So when all these different gods are doing all these different, uh, are in, in that place, and they're worshiping these gods, that's what they're doing. They're saying, this God is better than that God, than the God, or I can do it better. Now, that matters a lot when you think about control. Because when you try to control something, you're telling God, I know how this is supposed to go. God, I know better than you. In essence, you're making yourself God. God of your own life, which will ultimately lead to you doing whatever it is that you think is right. So yes, in Pergamum, there were some bad results. But the thing that's so interesting about this when you read this passage is this church actually stayed really faithful compared to many of the other ones. They stayed really faithful. But it was the state that this church lived in that I really want to focus on today and really uh, kind of paint this picture for you today. What they were in the middle of that blew my mind as I began to study it, and I hope it does that to you. So this is Revelation 2, uh, 12 through 13. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So Jesus tells John, write these words to the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. I know where you live. 
where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Anipus, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. During Don and I's time out of the pulpit in October and November, which most of you kind of walked through that with us and shared uh, a lot of that with us, we spent a lot of time being ministered to rather than being the ones that are ministering and counseling people and talking to people. We just took a little bit of time to let some people speak to us. And we worked towards some of our own healing and we tried our best to not really do a lot of pouring out just for that little time period. So we saw a marriage counselor, we saw personal counselors, we saw a financial counselor, we even saw a vocational, saw some vocational counseling about like the best way to structure things and how to do all this. Again, it was a desperate hour for us and we didn't want to try and pretend anymore. So we took some steps. You know, we were hurt. We were hurting. And we were having a hard time getting our minds around the best way to move forward just in life and where we were at that time. So we went to a counselor in Ohio for a few days. And uh, before we could do that, we had to drop the kids off at my parents' house. And my parents lived in Lansing. So we, we drove out the night before. And on the way, we had to stop by the Apple store because my laptop wasn't turning on. It happened to be, I don't know if you remember this night, it happened to be that November night where it was just ice and snow and crazy weather in the middle of November. It's like, what in the world is going on? It actually took us two and a half hours just to get to the Apple store. So we're at the Apple store after two and a half hours, and then we took the computer in, got it fixed, and then it took another two hours to get to my parents, and then another almost three to get home to Detroit. So then we slept for like 10 minutes and then went to the middle of Ohio because we had to be there early in the morning. Now during uh, that, we get to Ohio, and, and Don and I see this guy, and he sees us individually, or sees us together for a day, then the second day he sees us individually, and just like talks us through where we are in our own lives individually, and then talks to the third day together again. Now during the second day session, I'm sitting there, I'm talking to this, to this therapist guy, uh, I calmly begin walking him through some of the things that I've that I've experienced, that our family's been through, and some of the, the things that, you know, you've heard some of these things. Some of them are a little bit traumatic. I'm not going to deny that. They're, they're, it's kind of screwed up. Uh, but I began to walk him through some of those things and how I was processing those things. And to me, it felt like a really healthy conversation. I'm like, I see why people do this. This is really healthy. This is really helpful. Right? I share with him a lot of stuff. And then, um, it's all stuff we survived. So it's like, well, we're better off coming on the end of it, right? Jesus is Lord. So I felt really good about sharing it. But on the third day, we were in that room again. Uh, the two of us are both there, and we're talking to this guy. And this is what he told me at one point in that meeting. He looks at me, and he's like, Jacob, when I met with you alone, I saw one of the highest levels of anxiety I've ever seen come into this place. He said, we send people to the emergency room for having that much anxiety. That, that shocked me. I, I, not because I think I'm not anxious. I know that I'm anxious. That's part of why we had to do what we needed to do. I know that's a battle for me. But in that moment when I'm sharing this experience, I felt really normal. I felt like really good. I felt like, yeah, this is good. We got this thing. We, you know, this is, you know, by the end of this, he's going to think, oh, you're, you don't have any problems. This is all your wife. And no, no, I'm just joking. Um, totally kidding. Uh, so anyway, we go through that. And 
I felt like the moments I was sharing about my experiences, I felt like I had control in that moment, which made me have this thought in my head, and I'm sure that you would have the exact same thought. I'm thinking, my good days are that bad? My good days are emergency room level anxiety. Like, really? Now listen, I I tell you that, that part of the story for this one simple reason. If you think you're anxious, and you think nobody understands you, it is quite possible that I understand you. (laughs) Which is very significant when it comes to the body of Christ. You don't have to suffer alone. You don't have to suffer silently. You don't have to wait until you're on the other side of your pain to talk about it. Because if you wait to share about it until it's a testimony, then that testimony will be of a person who walks through something horrible all by themselves. All alone. And that can't be the way we do things around here. Dawn talked about this very, very thoroughly a couple weeks ago. I'm just reiterating what she said a couple weeks ago, but you have to hear it. The church exists so that you don't have to walk alone. The church exists so that I don't have to walk alone. That's why we were here almost every single week during that time, during that process, and why we were praying with people and loving on people and just in community with one another. I said this at the end of Don's sermon two weeks ago, and, and, I, and I meant every word of it, even though it was very, very, very dramatic. If we have to be, her and I, Don and I, if we have to be the most broken pastors on planet Earth in order to cultivate an environment where broken people stop pretending they're not broken, then so be it. We, ha- we strive for wholeness every day, church. We do. We work for it. We, we, we dream of it. We strive for nearness to Jesus every day because you cannot have wholeness without Jesus. But we talk about our pain because you cannot heal what you hide. Someone once said it like this, you're only as sick as your secrets. That wasn't me. There's like a million, I tried, there's like 15 different people that have taken credit for that quote and there's like those, uh, you know, those meme things and their pictures around them. Uh, so I did, I just, died. somebody said it, but it's true. You're only as sick as your secrets. And we're getting healthier every single day. Was that you, You're the originator? Okay. We're getting healthier every single day because we believe wholeness is possible and we believe that Jesus is on the throne and we believe that it's, it's, that's what God has for us and that we believe that's what God has for you. So the next day after Ohio, we went home. And before we had left for the trip, Dawn made these amazing chocolate chip cookies and she made out this amazing little play of cookies and left them for the kids to eat while we were gone. Um, so they could just kind of consume those in our absence and think about us and how amazing the cookies are and how amazing we are and love us and miss us. And when we got home, the, we, the, the, we went to, the kids came down and said the cookies disappeared. And the chewed up apple core was on the plate where there used to be cookies. So our kids told us, we're like, what in the world? We thought maybe the babysitter played like a brilliant trick where he just like ate all the cookies and put the apple core in there and was like, you know, don't eat cookies, kids. But then Dawn noticed that a chocolate bar that she had out that was in a wrapper, no longer was in the wrapper, it was chewed up and it was uh, sitting, sitting there all chewed up. And then we walked into our back room of the house that, where we spend most of our time studying and we started to hear the sound upstairs that sounded like a huge critter, like it wasn't a mouse. We've dealt with mice before. This is like a rat maybe or a cat maybe or a squirrel. Like I don't know what it was, but it was so absurdly loud wreaking havoc inside our house upstairs in like in a space upstairs. Now, I don't like seeing animals in my house. I pretend they're not there, so I went outside. 
when that happened. <laughs> I went outside out back. The kids were playing out back. School was about to start. They were making a snowman. And I looked up as I w- the kids were showing me the snowman, and I saw a squirrel coming from our house, and I swear to you, he had an entire cookie in his mouth. I was mad. Those were my kids' cookies. And if, if anybody's going to eat them but my kids, it's going to be me. Same day, a few hours later, I got my laptop out that I had two and a half hours in the snowstorm to get fixed. And the same problem was there again. It, it, they didn't fix it. They temporarily fixed it. It went right back to where it was. And so I'm sitting there, I'm talking to Apple on the phone, trying to diagnose this. How do I fix this? I don't want to drive back there again. It took me two and a half hours. You know how that would go, right? And as I'm doing that, I'm frustrated about that. I start hearing that stinking critter upstairs again, going nuts and ripping apart stuff. And I hear all this crazy noise. And, I, and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this happening and my computer's not working and I have a final due. I'm doing a master's program. I have two finals due in one week. And I just remember sitting there, talking to Apple, hearing that sound, thinking about that paper, thinking, who the heck wouldn't be anxious? Who wouldn't be anxious like this? A couple weeks later, we had to take the kids out of school early to go to the dentist. And uh, we had this brilliant plan, this was before Christmas, to go as a family, do that, and then we'd all go get a Christmas tree. So we pulled all the kids out of school, instead of keeping them in. We went to the dentist, and then while we're at the dentist, we realized that our youngest, Lucy, was having problems breathing. She wasn't breathing very well. So we got a sick visit scheduled by the doctor. I'm like, well, there's there's a tree lot not far from the doctor. We'll go to the doctor, and then we'll go get the tree. Long story short, uh, we go to the doctor, they give her breathing treatment. All of a sudden, the lady looks up to us and says, I have to call an ambulance. We, 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 can't, we can't control this. We have to get her to the emergency room. Little two-year-old baby. Uh, and we said, well, the hospital's right there. We have our car. Can we just drive her? They let us drive uh, her there if we promised to go straight there. And they called ahead so that they would treat it as if she came in on an ambulance because they needed to see her right away. So we just ran our little two-year-old to the um, to the doctor, to the, to the hospital, to the emergency room, uh, and they got her in right away. They ended up admitting her, which that had never, we've never had any kids have to spend the night in the emergency room. Uh, and in the end, Dawn stayed with the baby for the night. I took the other three kids home. And I got home, and in the kitchen was a broken coffee mug, a lamp that had been knocked over on the floor, a glass that had been broken on the floor, and a bunch of f- bread that had been ripped into. Like, if we could add any more stress to an already difficult situation, dropped into an already difficult season of our lives, I I, I don't know, it it felt like if I were to tell everything going through our lives, this sermon would go way too long, but it couldn't get any more frustrating. So, I picked up the broken coffee mug. I picked up the several pieces, the broken glass and all that. The mug was the gift from a church that we had spoken at earlier that year. So it was sort of important to me, but it wasn't that big of a deal. I looked at it and I threw it in the trash. Because in my life, and I had to come to terms with this, I simply do not have time anymore to live in the moment of that broken glass on the floor. There's just too much to be done. At some point in your life, and some of this might sound a bit insensitive and I don't mean it to be, but I'm preaching to myself today. At some point in your life, you have to determine you will not be controlled by and you will not be defined by your circumstances. 
It takes a mental shift. But you have to realize that you are defined by the fact that you are an image bearer of Jesus Christ and that you were created for a mission. And if you can get those two things in your mind, your life will begin to shape up and change in a way that you're like, wow, how is this happening? How was I? I once was this and now I'm this. Something will start changing in you. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 14. He says, the love of Christ is what controls us. Because we know that Jesus died for everybody. So now that gives us a mission to spread the word of this. It goes on to talk about the ministry of reconciliation. Our, our main verse at our church. And how we're all ambassadors for Christ. And here on We're all ambassadors here and we have this mission here of reconciling the world back to God by not counting their trespasses against them. That's why we operate the way that we do in this church because we believe that nothing you can do can separate you from God and God can still use you and God still wants to use you and God still will use you. But here's why we have to get this in our heads, why why we have to get our minds around this. The only thing that we should be controlled by is the love that Jesus has for us and the type of person that is designed to turn us into. But when we spend all of our days consumed by our circumstances, and again, there's no condemnation, I have wasted, and, and, and there's nothing I could do about it. I, I've, many, many days have been lost, just consumed in, in moments that weren't as they should be, in my mind, not as it should be. But if we spend, when we spend all of those days consumed by our circumstances, we do lose sight of our mission. And that's the whole point of Satan. That's his whole point. The adversary's job is to make us lose sight. The whole point is to take us off of the things that we're supposed to do to bring wholeness to the world. And I I know that that's a lot easier said than done. And I realize that because I've lived with this for years. But the mental shift that says, God has me here, is absolutely required if you're ever going to overcome your inability to be here. There has to be a reason to be here, wherever here is. So back to Revelation. There's a key word, there's several keys that we're going to show you in this passage, but there's a key to the word live that matters greatly in this passage here in Revelation. It says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. First of all, I think that this is incredibly significant that we notice what Jesus is saying to his church. He's saying, I see you. I see you. I know where you are. I know what you're going through. I know what you're up against. I haven't turned my eyes from you or abandoned you. I see you. And as simple as that may sound to you today, before we get into any more of this, I think some of us just need to take a moment to process that. God is saying to you, I see you. I see you. I know life isn't turning out exactly the way you planned it. I know you're anxious. I know there are days when you don't want to get out of bed. I know there are days when your heart and your mind are broken into a million pieces. I see you. I know where you live. I know where you live. Typically, the word used to describe Christians in living or dwelling somewhere is the word parokine. 
And what parokine is, is it's, it's, it makes sense. It's an exile or a non-permanent resident. It implies that uh, they're kind of wanderers. They're people who live there, uh, but they aren't actually residents there. They, they, they live there, but they won't live there forever. Kind of like how Paul says we're ambassadors. We're all ambassadors to a place that is different than our actual home. Uh, we represent Christ in the kingdom. Uh, we represent his kingdom in this earthly kingdom. Right? So, so there was, rightly so, always this sense that everything is temporary and where we are now is not necessarily where we're going. We're citizens of another kingdom. Yet live here in this passage is actually a different word. Here, when it says, I know where you live, it is the Greek word keroikoin. And it means settle down or permanent residence. The other times that John uses this word, without fail, every single time that he uses this word, kiroikain, it is about living on earth. He can say that about living on earth because no matter where they up and go, they're still there. They're, they, they, this is where they live. He says, you guys live, you dwell on the earth. So he, he uses it that way. 100% of the time besides here, this is the only time he specifically says these people live in this specific place and this is where they live. This is their permanent place that they live. This is their earthly home. Their earthly home is in the place that Satan lives. Think about that. That means you're going to have to figure out how to live for Jesus and for other people in the place that Satan lives. You know, I've found that Christians who make the biggest impact on the places that they're called to are the ones who don't spend every day trying to get out of it. They don't spend every day trying to go someplace else to try to be another place. Uh, they, don't, they don't try to escape persecution or whatever it is they're up against. I mean, even when it comes down to heaven, and you've heard me say this before, heaven is real and it's amazing and it's going to be blessed someday, but so many Christians put all their faith in where they're going to heaven someday that they miss out on the job here of bringing, to heaven, bringing heaven to earth today. And so what happens is heaven becomes an idol and we're always looking forward and we're not living here. That is a recipe for anxiety. It is what happens, our blessed hope is coming. So that's all, instead of, we'll just wait for it. You can't just wait for it. The church is not called to escape. And where the oppression is the worst, these Christians were not called to pass through. They were called to stay. They weren't looking for the next thing or the, another church or a better paying job or a warmer city or a place where life would be a little bit easier or a little bit more manageable. John, Jesus, writing through John, is saying, yes, Satan dwells here. But so do you. So do you. Most scholars would tell you it's a contrast between darkness and light because the, the same word that's used for the church, you live here, is used for Satan. When it says, this is where Satan lives. Satan lives here. Again, the only place in, the whole, in, the, in all of John's writings that that word is used in that way. Satan has made his permanent home in this place. He has no intention of picking up and going someplace else. So we need a light that is going to be just as consistent. One thing that, uh, the way that Pastor Matthew Barnett, who uh, founded the Dream Center, one thing he'll say often, people ask him, what's the secret recipe? How do you do it? How do, what's the secret? How did it work? They have this 400,000 square foot uh, hospital in, in Echo Park, Los Angeles, and it's been there for probably almost 30 years now. And he said, there's not a secret. He said, what's the secret? He said, we stayed. We stayed. 
When we started, he said, he's always talking about how when we started the gains, we're in the park across the street and there's drug dealers in the park across the street and there was pimps and there were people doing all this different stuff. And over time, all of them left and we stayed. And then more of them came in and some of them even tried to push us out, but it didn't work. We stayed and then eventually they realized well, they're not going anywhere, so we're going to go somewhere else. We're not going to go up against that. We stayed. Light stayed. The language in this passage is very, very consistent to show us this contrast. Another example is very significant is, uh, is where it talks about Anipus. What we know of Anipus is almost nothing besides the fact that he was killed for one way or another for his faith. The legend has it that he was roasted to death inside of a brass bull. But knowing the nature of Pergamum, all the scholars will agree that he, it was definitely had to do with the fact that he, he was put to death for refusing to acknowledge Caesar's power. Say, Caesar, you're not, you're not Lord. I mean, that's what it means when a Jew would say, uh, Jesus is Lord. Or when, a, when a Messianic Jew and a Christian would say, Jesus is Lord. It was a declaration that at the end of the day, Caesar is not in control of you. Jesus is. And Christians need not worry about what Rome would do to them. Now that was a very bold statement considering the level of violence that the Romans inflicted upon Christians in that era. But one thing that matters greatly here is this word witness. Jesus calls Anipus my faithful witness. And other translations actually translate this as my faithful martyr. Mostly the older translations. Because it's the Greek word martus. And that's the fascinating thing. The two are one and the same. Martyr and witness in that this word are both, it means the same thing. To be a witness for Jesus Christ in that day, especially in this place, likely meant you were going to be a martyr. So for those who were witnesses to the resurrected Christ, there was this underlying anxiety, rightly so, right? Of knowing this might get me killed. I could die for this. Coupled with this urgency that said, but it's worth it. In Matthew 10, Jesus talks about how persecution will come. And he tells us, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we, we, we all love that part. We quote that part. But then he goes on to say this. He talks about how Christians are going to get flogged in the synagogues. They're going to get dragged before the authorities. And what does he say? He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. That's where the ship was going for the church in Pergamum. And all of these Jesus followers gladly got on board because they knew that the mission was of infinite value. So knowing the cost, they committed. They committed to this place where Satan had made his throne. N.T. Wright says it like this. How then should a Christian live in a city like Pergamum? What could one do? And what should one not do? We can only guess at the many anxious discussions and varied teachings that might have attempted to address these questions should one take part in the normal civic life, which included festivals of the gods, not least Rome and the emperor. In echoing his words, I ask you the same. What do we do? What do we do when we know that God has called us to do something, to a mission, to a place, to a people, and it's bigger than ourselves, and it's out of our control. What do we do? 
What do we do when everything that we hoped for has been smashed into a million pieces? And yet we still know with everything in us that God has called us to do it. What do we do when the right thing is also the costly thing? What do we do? And I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of you were sitting here right now and you would sit in this moment thinking, what is the point of this? What does this have to do with anxiety? The church works to bring wholeness to the world. That's our mission. It's the Hebrew word shalom. We're here to restore it so that it can be what it should be. Yet so many of us are marizo. We're in pieces. We're in pieces ourselves. And when we look at the task in front of us, and we look at the world, and we look at what we are up against, most of us don't even want to try to pick up the pieces and step into who we're supposed to be because we know that the minute we get out there, it's all going to get smashed again anyway. Church, there's a battle for the souls of the people in our community. And inside many of you and inside me and inside all of us, one way or another, a war is waging that is doing everything it can to convince us that we shouldn't be out there. We shouldn't be helping. We shouldn't be speaking up for the marginalized. We shouldn't be picking up the broken. There is a war waging inside all of us, or at least many of us, that says you shouldn't get out of bed today. You shouldn't go in. Today won't be better than yesterday. It's all out of your control and it's all going to fall apart anyway. There are voices trying to tell us you can't change anything. You aren't going to make any difference. You can't do any good. There really isn't any point in trying. You remember that phrase, that Roman phrase? What some Roman governors have is E.S. Gladi. The right of the sword. Some of those who ruled in and for Rome had this right that others did not have. And this right said, if I don't like what you're doing, I can kill you for it. If it furthers the cause of Rome, I'll just kill you for it. It was within the rights of a person who had this to take a life at any time. And we know from history that this right was implemented many, many times to kill many, many Christians. So for the people in Pergamum, These people were the reason they were anxious. The people with the right to the sword. It was the thing that Christians worried about. And if they weren't very, very careful, they could be consumed by that worry. For us in our context. And this is not to downplay what actually happened to the church in Pergamum. I, see, I, I try to be careful with these things. That's real. That, really, that was what they were really up against. It's, it, you should take great hope in the fact that the world has actually gotten a lot better. Most of the time, Christians aren't roasted in brass bulls simply for confessing that Jesus is Lord. That doesn't really happen too much anymore. It may happen some places sometimes. But maybe we need to ask ourselves, in your context, what have you given power in your life? What have you given the right to the sword in your life? What is it that could take you out at any moment? Shalom. Hebrew, the Hebrew word for peace, wholeness, it is one of the opposites of anxiety, right? To be broken in pieces and to be whole. Those are opposite things. The ancient word picture for shalom, so the way that the, the first way shalom was ever written in Hebrew is the letters sheen, lamed, vav, and mem. It's the picture of teeth 
which always symbolized to consume or to destroy. And then the second picture is the picture of a staff, which is a shepherd's staff, and that always symbolized authority. Vav is the picture of a nail or a hook. So as you put a picture up or how you establish something, how you put something up, you establish it with a nail. And then mem is the wave crashing, causing chaos. Many of you know our stories of the hurricane and the chaos that has caused us. So the ancient word picture for shalom is that in order to find peace, you must first destroy the authority that is establishing chaos in your life. What holds the sword? What do you give the power? What do you control by out of fear? This is why this is so important that we diagnose this. Notice how Jesus identifies himself in this moment to these Christians living in the very place where Satan himself has made his home. Where you don't know today if today is going to be the day the government's going to come in and they're coming for you or if your family's going to get taken from you or if that sword's going to get used against you. You don't know. But to that church, this is what Jesus starts the whole thing by saying. He says, John, write these words to Pergamum. Remember where true power lies. Because Jesus starts the whole thing by saying it's actually him who's holding the two-edged sword. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him, Jesus, who has the sharp double-edged sword. And the world will not be won by the forces of evil who try to leverage their strength to expand their power. And if you live by that sword, you will always be anxious because in the end it cannot stand. But Jesus is Lord. The same Jesus who Rome killed yet still had no power over. And he wants to be the guiding force in everything in your life. And he is with you in the anxiety. And he is with you in the depression. And he is with you when everyone else abandons you. He sees you. He knows where you live. He sees you when you have to bury the person that you love the most. He sees you. He's there. In all the broken pieces reminding you that he sees every single shard and that he loves you more than anything. The world is anxious. Every day it seems like something different. You know, war, policies, bankruptcy, sickness, evictions, the election coming up. That's like the thing I'm least looking forward to ever because I always offend like 50 million people no matter what you say. Elections are very anxious. The current scare is the coronavirus. Our, uh, our Michigan district, our, 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 our denomination, we have um, 30, it, just in Michigan within our, within our fellowship, we have 30 missionaries who work in China, including their families. Missionaries and their families, total 30 people. And what is crazy is that just before they closed the border and issued that travel ban, all 30 of those people traveled somewhere else for a, a conference that they had scheduled for a year. They were just, they were just somewhere else. So when the ban actually happened, they weren't in China. They were someplace else. And of, of course, they're, they're all very eager to get back there and to continue the work that they're doing, to love their neighbors and doing life with their communities. They didn't run from it. They weren't running from the virus. They just happened to be someplace else when it happened. And, and I try to be real careful with stories like this because I don't know, because I, I, I know that not every story ends up this way and I know a lot of people have died from that. And I want to be sensitive to that. 
But there's just something about people who trust God with their entire lives, with everything, who seem to get to see God move in just these crazy, miraculous, incredible ways. And many of our friends over there have cattle kind. They've committed themselves to the people of China and the work needed to be done to spread the gospel there. And yet God, the one who truly is in control, chose to lift them out of there during this uncertain time and put them somewhere else. And when they can, they'll go back because they're dedicated to the mission that God has called them to in that place, you know, in in my life and in my family. When I think of everything that we've experienced along the way in in our journey, the protection through some really crazy stuff, the provision, the covering, it's taken a long time for me to realize this. But I don't want to be in control. I remember sharing part of our story in a teaching of an event a while back. And afterwards, someone just came up and reminded me, man, the safest place to be is in the will of God. I want a catechine. I want to make my home in the middle of the pieces that God has called me to. Because he is the one who holds the sword. And he is the one who goes before us. God, we rejoice. That even in all the controllables, uncontrollables, the anxieties in our lives, you're still God. And more than that, you hold the sword to fight our battles. And you're coming for us. You'll guard us, you'll protect us, and you will fight for us. Always and only. God, we thank you for that. When I think about my experience with the spouse with anxiety, um, I think about the effect that has on response to the world around you. Um, Suddenly, everything feels like the enemy. Everything, because you just can't grapple with what, who the enemy is. And that's, that's what we need to do, is figure out the enemy. Um, I remember we had a realization in the fall of like, oh, we need to link arms and fight this thing that is coming at us. We know the cost of what it is to do what God asks you to do. We know the cost on our lives. And it's time for us to join forces with what God is doing and fight against the thing that he's trying to protect us from. Um, so when you're in the garden in, the, in Genesis there's a slew of lies basically that are believed in thought and I really feel like anxiety pushes you to those lies brokenness in general does but anxiety especially away from truth away from the trueness of the reality that you actually are in when you really consider all the things. And truth, the word aletheia is this idea of unhiding. 
okay? And when I think about the image of God and how we're connecting with people in their brokenness and asking them to say, here I am, and unhide who they are a little bit. There's this sense of unhiding the truth, unhiding what's real and what's not the reality they experience, but the reality of who God is and what God wants to do in their lives. So the first truth that is broken, the first, the first untruth, sorry, is that God is our enemy. Suddenly God doesn't have our best interest and he's our enemy. In that anxiety, everything is your enemy, but God is in control. And if he's in control, he's your enemy. But that's not true. The second, and this is the garden. God said, where are you? Adam and Eve, where are you? God is the enemy. They were hiding from him. And when the lies come, there's a hiding. The second untruth is that we shouldn't be vulnerable. They were naked and they hid their bodies. Okay, don't be naked. That's not what I'm saying. But there's an idea that this vulnerability and this exposure to God is no longer okay. And this exposure to each other is no longer okay. That there's shame in someone seeing who we are. Not saying be naked, please. <laughs> that we hide. And the unhiding is saying, here I am. I'm broken, but here I am. And the anxiety drives you to hide all that you're feeling and try and present yourself as something else and hide from Jesus who's trying to draw the sword for you and hide and not believe that, that, that God is going to fight your battle for you. And the third lie is that we're better alone. We don't need each other. Adam and Eve pointed fingers and ran away and hid from each other. And the last lie is that there's no place for us. None of those are true. And there's a hiding because of those things. And when we're in our anxiety, in our brokenness, when other people in our world are in anxiety, they're doing the hiding. And when you say, here I am, you come out of that hiding of one layer onion peel and it makes us all cry at a time. But the unhiding is the way that we get to truth. And when we can get to truth, and we can declare that God has your best interest at heart, that we need each other, that we should be open and honest with each other, that we have a place in this world, that's when we find wholeness, shalom. That's where we find it, in the unhiding, to find the truth. Let's do that. Let's, I mean, that's guys, that's what we do at the table. If you've never been, show up, bring, bring something to share. Unhide something, a family recipe, a friend, or a story. Everyone has something to unhide. And when you unhide, it helps me unhide. And when I unhide, I become more whole. Human connection. It's what we do at the table. We share and we unhide with each other but we don't get naked. Please, I feel like I have to say that for somebody. Somebody's going, I'm getting naked at the table. No, 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 no. Good, you guys are laughing. That's good. Some healing and laughter, right?